Welcome to another episode from 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This one, titled The Marlowe Brothers, is from our history series and tells the bigger-than-fiction true story of the real Marlowe Brothers, five Texas brothers born and raised in the heart of the American frontier who ended up fighting to survive the slow-moving wheels and sometimes corrupt system of frontier justice. If you're a fan of old westerns, you'll remember the 1965 movie The Sons of Katie Elder, directed by Henry Hathaway, starring John Wayne and co-starring Dean Martin and George Kennedy, a movie which contained all the elements of a good western, but which strayed far from the original story, which was titled Life of the Marlows, and picked up by William H. Wright in a Los Angeles, California bookstore, originally in 1953. The story told of a frontier doctor and his wife who raised a family of nine while constantly moving through south-central United States and even across the Rio Grande to Old Mexico, then northward along the Chisholm Trail to Indian Territory, to Colorado, and to Texas, seeking a place to finally settle. The Marlowe brothers grew up behind a Winchester, fighting off Indians and learning how to survive, and the family story became a documentary of frontier life in the late 1800s. Thinking that it would make the basis of a good Western, Wright paid members of the Marlowe family $1,000 each for the rights to make it into a screenplay. Paramount purchased the rewritten story by William Wright and Talbot Jennings in 1955. This version concerned five brothers and centered around a cattle drive from Texas to Colorado. Sam Briskin was assigned as producer. Frank Burt was to write the script. John Sturgis was going to direct, and Alan Ladd was going to star, making a return to Paramount after several years' absence. He still owed Paramount one film left. But when the movie was made 12 years later, the film's plot had been drastically changed, Alan Ladd was out, John Wayne was in, and the scriptwriter was new. The story veered way off course, and the real story of the Marlowe brothers faded into obscurity. Until now. Coming up, the real-life story that inspired the hard-driving John Wayne Western, The Sons of Katie Elder. There's a common expression out there that the wheels of justice move slowly, and for many they do. And for those of us on the outside looking in, it often seems that the guilty ones receive more protection than the victims, and oftentimes they do as well. There are reasons why this happens today, reasons that can be found in historical events that have shaped our justice system ever so slowly through the years to bring it up to where it is today. Far from perfect, and often unfair to the innocent victim in its process, but usually right in its final verdict. Frontier justice in America, not too long ago, usually provided quick and deadly solutions for criminals whose actions deserved a response from an enraged community not wanting to wait out the process of courts and law. But they didn't always get it right, and innocent men died along with the guilty ones. Such was the story of the five Marlowe brothers in Texas in 1889. On the evening of January 19, 1889, Two wagons and a buggy slowly crossed Dry Creek two miles east of Graham, the seat of Young County, Texas. The lead wagon held six prisoners, chained together in pairs by manacles attached to their ankles, and a guard, Fleet A. Martin. 
The second wagon carried Deputy U.S. Marshal Edward W. Johnson, three guards, weapons and ammunition, while four more guards followed in the buggy and on horseback. Suddenly, several masked figures rose from the roadside bushes, one man commanding, Halt! Hold up your hands! Diving clear of the lead wagon, the guard of the prisoner wagon, Fleet Martin, shouted, Here they are! Take all six of the sons of bitches! What followed was a deadly gunfight between a vigilante mob and the prisoners, George, Charles, Alfred, and Llewellyn, also called Epp, the Marlowe brothers, and two other prisoners. The climactic act in a pageant of frontier justice that included misinformation, persecution, politics, mistakes, mob attacks, murder, lawsuits, a famous Texas ranger, a cool-headed Colorado lawman, and the U.S. Supreme Court. The Marlowe's were a close-knit family. They were travelers following their patriarch, Dr. Williamson Marlowe, through Missouri, Indian Territory, which is present-day Oklahoma, Old and New Mexico, Colorado and Texas, following the Chisholm Trail, holding small herds of horses and cattle. In Texas and Oklahoma, they made their living partly off Dr. Marlowe's medical services and partly off of rounding up stray cattle and selling them to nearby Fort Sill, just across the border in Indian Territory. Cattle were available in the heavy brush and cedar brakes that formed the landscape of that area if you were willing to take the effort to bust them out. And if you've ever done that, you know it's hard and sometimes dangerous work for man and horse, especially horses. And cattle bred well in that area, so there was a fair amount of unbranded strays to be had. The downside to gathering strays was that there were still ranches that didn't brand there, and rustling was no joke in matter. Suspected rustlers were often hung without the benefit of a trial. But no charges were ever filed, and the family stayed out of trouble. Dr. Marlowe died in 1885, leaving his second wife, Martha Jane, and their five youngest surviving sons, George, Charlie, Alf, Boone, and Epp, to search for a place to settle down. The sons worked on railroad grading crews and as farmers and stock handlers. The family bothered no one until May of 1886, when Boone shot and killed cowboy James Holston in Vernon, Texas, allegedly in self-defense. The county records describe it this way. The particulars of the shooting that occurred on Beaver Creek, seven miles south of Harold, Texas, is that two men, one named Whitling and the other, Shorty Holston, armed themselves with a shotgun and six-shooter and proceeded to the sheep ranch of Barry Thompson. They passed between Holston and Boone Marlowe, a herder on Thompson's place, when Holston drew his pistol and fired two shots at Marlowe. Marlowe quickly shot Holston with a Winchester rifle, one ball penetrating the heart, killing him instantly, the other shot striking Holston just above the heart. Boone Marlowe left for parts unknown. The shooting occurred May 17, 1886. Although a court hearing would later dismiss murder charges against Boone for lack of evidence, Boone, unaware of the hearing, fled to Colorado. The family followed, joined him in Trinidad, Colorado, and later in that year of 1886, moved back to Indian Territory, where they felt Boone might be safer from prosecution. After two quiet years, in 1888, the Marlowe's were living near Anadarko, present-day Oklahoma. George, Charlie, and Alf were married, George and Charlie with a daughter apiece. George, Epp, and Boone were farming, while Charlie and Alf worked near Fort Sill for a Kiowa chief named Sunboy. In mid-spring, George rode to Gunnison area of Colorado to visit his in-laws and his friend Cyrus Wells Doc Shores, the county sheriff and deputy U.S. Marshal. All was peaceful until August of 1888, when Los Animas County Sheriff William T. Burns in Trinidad sent a letter to Deputy U.S. Marshal Edward W. Johnson in Graham, Texas, cautioning him to, quote, 
Look out for five Marlowe brothers who are endeavoring to get away with 40 head of horses stolen from this place, end quote. The Marlowe brothers hadn't been in Texas for two years, but no one was apparently keeping track of their movement, and someone back in Colorado must have had an axe to grind. George was in Colorado with his new wife, but not rustling horses for a living. Johnson, a career law enforcement officer, now a U.S. deputy marshal, who had lost his right arm in a gunfight earlier in the year, was a complicated man. In addition to being a deputy marshal, he was also employed by the Cattlemen's Association as a range detective and likely received a bonus when he could bring rustlers to justice. Five rustlers in one catch would mean a fat bonus, but he was also, according to many, a fair man and a defender of the law. He would soon be tested. Johnson headed for Indian Territory with a small posse, but returned empty-handed. On a follow-up trip in late August, he arrested Charlie, Alf, Boone, and Epp and took them to Graham for arraignment and trial. On his return from Gunnison, Colorado, George was detained for several days at Fort Sill under orders left by Johnson, then released. He gathered up the rest of the family and headed for Graham to seek his brother's release. The family rented a cabin from area rancher Oscar G. Denson, but when George went to the jail on October 6th to ask about his four brothers, he was immediately arrested and jailed with them. Later that month, the grand jury indicted the brothers for theft of the horses from three Indians, a caddo named Ba Sindabar, a Comanche named Black Crow, and another caddo named Washington. None of these Indians lived anywhere near Trinidad, Colorado, and none testified against the Marlows. It was a setup pure and simple. Ba Sindabar told the jury... He did not, quote, own that many horses, end quote, and that, quote, Marlowe men no steal Indian man's horses anyway because they have better horses they get somewhere else. But Indian man thinks these white mans, meaning Johnson and his deputies, steal if Indian man don't sleep with one eye open, end quote. Even so, the brothers were bound over for trial, set for March 1889. The fix was in. After fruitless weeks of trying to arrange bail for her sons, Mother Marlowe got her landlord to back her, and in late October the court released all the brothers but Boone, who finally made bail on December 15th. Convinced they would be acquitted, George, Charlie, Alf, and Epp went to work for Denson and a neighbor while awaiting trial. All was not quiet, however. While Johnson was transporting them to Graham for trial, the brothers had repeatedly insisted that they had never been in trouble with the law, except for Boone, who had killed that cowboy in self-defense several years before. While the brothers were in jail, Johnson had gone to Vernon and requested a warrant for Boone's arrest on murder charges. The warrant, oblivious to the fact that the charges against Boone had been dropped two years before, arrived in mid-December. With Christmas approaching, the Marlowe's nightmare was about to get much worse. While the family rightly felt that Deputy U.S. Marshal Johnson was persecuting them, they had received fair treatment from Marion Wallace, the sheriff of Young County, whom they considered a friend. Wallace was universally liked in the community, but did not get along with Johnson. He warned the Marlows to be careful. The day after the warrant for Boone's arrest arrived, Sheriff Wallace and his deputy rode out to the Marlowes' rented cabin on the Denson spread. They arrived just as the family was about to have lunch. While Wallace took care of the horses, Collier went around to the cabin door, where Charlie Marlowe met him. Charlie invited him in for dinner, but Collier refused, stepped inside, spotted Boone Marlowe and said, I've come for you, Boone. Collier then drew his revolver and fired, but missed. Boone grabbed a Winchester and returned fire, grazing Collier and splintering the doorframe. 
As Collier fled, Boone rushed to the door and, seeing movement outside, fired a second shot. Sheriff Wallace, on hearing the earlier shots, had hurried around the corner of the cabin, and Boone's second slug struck him in the side, mortally wounding the sheriff. For a moment, the others stood stunned. Boone had just shot the only man who stood between freedom and what was likely now a rope for him. Then Charlie called for Collier to come help treat Wallace, while Epp rode to town to fetch a doctor. Collier left after a few minutes and immediately began distorting the events to make himself look better, saying that it could have been Charlie who shot Wallace, that Wallace had been shot while Collier was around the back of the cabin, and that Wallace told him to run. In fact, Wallace clearly identified Boone as the shooter to the doctor while being treated. But when justice hides under a rock, things like this get overlooked. So now the Marlowe family, wrongly accused of stealing horses, and Boone, wrongly accused of murder, found themselves with a dying marshal who had befriended them, and a soon-to-be replacement, Deputy Collier, all too willing to distort the truth to make himself look good. Collier, now acting as chief liar and instigator, returned with a large posse and arrested Charlie. Epp was already in custody in Graham. Boone had bolted before the posse arrived, which earned him a price on his head and triggered a massive manhunt. Although George and Alf were miles away at the time of the shooting, they too were arrested and placed in the Graham jail. All were charged with complicity in the shooting. Bail was set at $1,000 each, which they couldn't afford, so they remained in jail with little hope of release. Their only friend, Deputy Marshal Wallace, succumbed to his gunshot wound on Christmas Eve, and Collier, who had started all the lies that put all the Marlowe brothers behind bars with the exception of Boone, was named Sheriff. The four jailed brothers were now in serious trouble. Even though Boone alone had done the shooting and had not intended to kill Sheriff Wallace, the boys heard talk among their jailers of plans to lynch them, and Graham had a history of mistreating its prisoners. The Marlows thought they had been framed for horse theft and were likely to be lynched or convicted of Wallace's killing by a hostile citizenry. Rightly or wrongly, they believed their best chance of survival was escape, so they obtained a large knife from another prisoner and patiently cut their way through the wall of their second-floor cell, then tied sheets together to use a rope to climb down. On January 14, 1889, they escaped and started toward their families, but were quickly recaptured. Collier promptly took the brothers to a blacksmith and had them chained in pairs, George to Epp and Charlie to Alf, before returning them to jail under heavy guard. News of the jailbreak spread quickly. Several people, including some deputies, began urging mob action. A few citizens warned acting Deputy Marshal Johnson, but he felt that Collier and his deputies had the jail adequately protected. Then, near midnight on January 17th, a body of men entered the building, and jailer John Lavelle led them to the prisoner's cell. The mob first tried to force the brothers from their cell at gunpoint. When they refused, a young man named Bob Hill rushed in to grab Charlie, but Charlie walloped him. Falling back, Hill struck his head against the wall and later died of his injury. Other vigilantes tried to drag the brothers from the cell, but were forced back by Alf, who had armed himself with a section of lead water pipe another prisoner had unscrewed from the plumbing. Eventually, the mob gave up. The next morning, the town awoke to claims spread by Collier that a mob of 40 men, possibly a gang of outlaws led by Boone, had tried to rescue the Marlows, but Collier's men had stopped them. While the Graham Leader newspaper reported that none of the mob had been recognized, Charlie, George, and two other prisoners later testified they knew at least 10 of the men, including guards Eugene Logan and Dick Cook. County Attorney Fleet Martin, who, by the way, was a convicted killer from North Carolina, Sam Creswell and Frank Harmiston, 
and the jailer Level had helped the mob. But that was much later, when only Charlie and George were able to testify. A concerned citizen named Marion Lassiter urged Deputy Marshal Johnson to protect the Marlowes from further mob action, and Johnson telegraphed U.S. Marshal William Cabell in Dallas for advice. On January 19th, Cabell ordered Johnson to move the prisoners to Weatherford, about 60 miles southeast, where they could be held in safety until trial. Cabell also instructed Johnson to move quickly and in strict secrecy. Finally, justice was rearing its head, but only briefly. Johnson decided to move the prisoners that same night. He arranged for wagons and guards, including several friends of the late sheriff, supposedly to keep them from organizing another attack. The guards were Marion A., nicknamed Little Marion Wallace, nephew of the dead sheriff, Sam Wagoner, John Lavelle, Sam Creswell, and John B. Durand, Will Hollis, Eugene Logan, and Fleet Martin. All were told to keep the transfer secret, but at least five of these men were members of the mob at the jail. News of the transfer spread quickly. Johnson had not chosen wisely. When Johnson told the Marlows of the transfer order and identified his guards, the brothers thought another attack likely. As the guards walked the Marlows and fellow prisoners Lewis Clift and William Burkhardt to the wagons, some 30 men gathered to watch, and the boys knew the move was no longer a secret. You lied to us, Ed. Charlie accused Johnson. You're taking us out to have us mobbed again. When the marshal denied the charge, Charlie asked, If they do, will you give us guns? Johnson replied, Yes, and die with you if it comes to that. The transfer party left Bram at 9 p.m. on January 19th. As the wagons reached Dry Creek, Johnson called loudly for his men to pause for a drink, which the Marlows interpreted as a signal, and when they reached the far embankment, the fight began. Accounts of the clash differ, but when Johnson saw his trusted guards run, he knew he had been double-crossed. Johnson's descendants claim he fired the first shot, killing one of the mob before taking a bullet through the hand, which rendered the one-armed marshal defenseless and prompted him to seek cover. The Marlowe brothers leaped from the lead wagon, shuffled back to the second wagon, which had been abandoned by the guards and which contained rifles, and armed themselves. Their situation was desperate, Shackled together, they could not run, so they stood behind the wagons and fought for their lives. With the guards running for cover in the darkness, it was impossible to distinguish who was attacking and who was defending. But the first three casualties were Alf and Epp, who were riddled by bullets, along with guard Creswell, followed by mob leader Bruce Wheeler. Clift, one of the ambushers, took a shot to the thigh, while Alf Marlowe fell dead, killed by 15 bullets. Charlie Marlowe kept firing, and although George Marlowe was struck in his right hand, he kept fighting, with his dead brother Alf chained to his side. The surviving Marlowe stood back to back, firing at every muzzle flash. Charlie was struck in the head and chest by a shotgun blast that nearly killed him, as George shouted to his attackers, Come again, you cowardly bastards! We have plenty of ammunition and nobody hurt! Come on! Only one mob member, Frank Harmiston, took up the challenge. He walked straight toward George, revolver raised, and both men fired. Harmiston fell dead in the road. While George dueled with Harmiston, Charlie spotted Eugene Logan taking aim at George. Charlie shot Logan down. By then, the mob, completely demoralized, fled. Three vigilantes lay dead, as did Alf and Epp, with several more wounded. George and Charlie had survived, but both were seriously wounded, and they remained chained to their dead brothers. Charlie bore nine buckshot wounds. George then found a clasp knife on Criswell's body and cut the feet off the bodies of Alf and Epp, enabling him to flee with Charlie, Clift, and Burkhart. 
They drove one of the wagons to the Marlowe family cabin, stopping at a farmhouse along the way to break their leg irons. Cliff stayed with them while Burkhart disappeared. When the survivors reached the cabin, they treated their wounds and prepared to defend themselves again, for they knew Sheriff Collier would find them. Deputy Johnson's son went to the scene the next day, later recalling counting 15 separate pools of blood, 25 empty 10-gauge shotgun cartridges, and 100 trees marked by gunfire. The next morning, the 20th, Collier and a large group of men surrounded the cabin. Disgusted at the turn of events, Marion Lassiter sent a dispatch to Texas Ranger Charles Alberg, who lived nearby, to come help defuse the situation. At the same time, Little Marion Wallace recruited Sheriff George Moore of neighboring Jack County for help, telling him that the mob had been in cahoots with the Marlows and that all of the dead were guards. The lies just kept piling up. Lassiter, Alberg, and a doctor arrived about the same time. Lassiter quickly stood up to the posse, declaring that there had been enough bloodshed, that he and the doctor were going to attend to the wounded, and that if anyone were to attack the cabin, they'd have to kill him first. With that, Lassiter and the doctor strode down to the cabin and went inside. George and Charlie told them they would only surrender to U.S. Marshal Cabell or his deputy. By then, Sheriff George Moore of Jack County had learned the mob was composed of men from Graham and had also grown disgusted with the affair. He told Collier he lacked jurisdiction. Collier then became angry and pushed for an attack. Moore left the scene and immediately telegraphed Marshal Cabell. The following two days were tense. The Marlowe's expecting an assault by Collier's men at any time. On January 21, the bodies of Alf and Epp were delivered to the cabin after having been displayed at the courthouse in Graham. The grisly appearance of the bodies may have given pause to some of Collier's force. Mother Marlowe made arrangements to have the boys buried in the nearby town of Finice. Cabell's deputy, W.H. Morton, arrived January 22nd. After an argument with Collier, Morton was on the road with his prisoners within 20 minutes. A member of Collier's posse asked where they would board the train, and Morton immediately changed course for another station. On the trip, Charlie coughed up several balls of buckshot and began to improve. George and Charlie Marlowe and Lewis Clift were safe, but Boone Marlowe was not. Boone had gone to stay with his girlfriend and her family, the Harbolds, in the vicinity of Marlowe, but the girlfriend's brother, William Harbolt, put some poison in the food that his sister took to Boone. William Harbolt had obtained the poison from a Dr. Carter Harbolt. Harbolt, along with Jim Martin Beavers and John E. Derrickson, shot the already dead body for the $1,700 reward offered for his capture, 200 by the state of Texas and 1,500 by Young County, dead or alive. On January 29, 1889, they brought Boone's body to the authorities and demanded a reward, claiming that Boone was shot resisting arrest. An autopsy by Dr. R. N. Price determined that Boone was already dead when he had been shot and that he had died of arsenic poisoning. The three men were arrested, but released on bail. Harbolt was later shot in the Chickasaw Nation, and Beavers and Derrickson each received 15-year sentences. Boone was buried beside Alf and Epp at the cemetery in Finice. Meanwhile, the brutal mob ambush of the Brothers of Dry Creek had shocked most citizens of Graham. Even the partisan Graham leader demanded speedy punishment for the attackers. In late January, a grand jury indicted Fleet Martin, Eugene Logan, and Sam Wagoner for obstruction of justice and murder. Bail was set at 2500 each, and they were freed within 30 minutes. Their trial was set for October. George and Charlie were tried for horse theft in March and acquitted, but they remained in custody as federal witnesses in the mob trial. 
They lived in Dallas until August when Charlie heard that Collier had obtained a warrant for his arrest for the murder of Sheriff Wallace. Certain they would be killed if they returned to Graham, the Marlowes moved to southwestern Colorado, near the new railroad town of Ridgeway. They worked for rancher Arthur Hyde, who was also a friend of Sheriff Doc Shores of Gunnison. When the mob case came up for trial in October, and the Marlowes did not appear to testify, the trial was postponed until March of 1890. When they failed to appear in March, U.S. Marshal George A. Knight of the Northern District of Texas issued a warrant for their arrest as witnesses. Sheriff Doc Shores saw the notice and knew he had to act. The Marlowes were his friends, but he also had a duty to fulfill. He and a deputy traveled more than 90 miles out to the Marlowe homestead and argued the situation with the brothers. George and Charlie were adamant they would be killed if they returned to Texas. Shores proposed they travel with him to Gunnison, where he and Knight would arrange to provide them with disguises and an armed guard to transport them safely to court. Eventually, they trusted Shores and agreed. After meeting with Knight, they were provided with new clothes, hats, and gray wigs and testified against the mob not once, but several times. For his part in resolving the affair, Shores drew a reprimand from Albert H. Jones, the District U.S. Marshal for Colorado, for going outside official channels and negotiating directly with Knight rather than going through him. Nobody would have ever gotten to the truth except that when Deputy Marshal Ed Johnson was lying wounded at his home after the ambush, he gave a newspaper interview to the Graham leader. In the interview, he said that Deputy Sheriff Eugene Logan had been one of the guards taking the prisoners to Weatherford and had been wounded in doing so. In fact, Logan had not been one of the guards but one of the men in the ambush party. The insistence that something be done in the edition of January 24th of the Graham Leader and this slip-up by Johnson started an investigation into the affair by the U.S. Marshal for the Northern District of Texas in Dallas, William Lewis Cabell. In addition, the U.S. attorney sent an investigator to Young County, and that was what finally got the wheels of justice rolling. Collier, Deputy Johnson, and David Dink Allen, Attorney Robert Rob Holman, Jack Wilkins, W.R. Benedict, County Attorney Fleet Martin, Deputy Tax Collector John Lavelle, Constable Little Marion Wallace, the dead sheriff's nephew, Will Hollis, William B. Williams, Richard Dick Cook, Deputy Sheriff Eugene Logan, Constable Sam Wagoner, Clint Rutherford, and Verna Wilkerson were all charged with conspiring to falsify a case against the Marlowe brothers, conspiring to kill the Marlowe brothers in an ambush, and murdering Alfred and Llewellyn Marlowe while they were in the protective custody of a United States Marshal. However, only Cook, Hollis, Lavelle, Logan, Rutherford, Wagoner, Wallace, Wilkerson, and Williams went to trial. Logan, Wagoner, and Wallace were found guilty of conspiracy and not guilty of murder on April 17, 1891, and each sentenced to a $5,000 fine and 10 years imprisonment. The other defendants, Cook, Lavelle, Hollis, and Wilkerson, were found not guilty. B. Williams and Thomas B. Collier died while in jail in mid-January 1891. As previously stated, George and Charles were summoned to testify and asked for and received protective custody. Knight appointed George Marlowe a deputy U.S. Marshal, specifically to hold Charlie in custody as a witness in the mob trials. And he then appointed Charlie as a deputy U.S. Marshal to hold George as a witness. This far-sighted action would prove crucial in the months to come. Meanwhile, two of the prisoners who were in jail with the Marlows at the time of the mob attack turned state's evidence and testified against the conspirators. 
Clinton Rutherford was found not guilty on November 22, 1890, and the court removed Rutherford from the indictment, but bound over Eugene Logan and Verna Wilkerson. The case involving Eugene Logan, William Williams, Verna Wilkerson, and Clinton Rutherford, United States versus Eugene Logan et al., was separated from the other defendants and went all the way to the United States Supreme Court, see Logan versus United States. In April of 1892, the Supreme Court set aside the verdict on procedural technicalities and ordered a new trial. Despite that order, the case was never retried. The judge presiding over the case wrote, quote, This is the first time in the annals of history where unarmed prisoners, shackled together, ever repelled a mob. Such cool courage that preferred to fight against such great odds and die, if at all, in glorious battle rather than die ignominiously by a frenzied mob deserves to be commemorated in song and story. Judge Andrew Phelps McCormick, April 18, 1891. The surviving Marlows had filed a series of damage suits related to the wrongful deaths of Alf, Epp, and Boone. After several compromises, the cases were settled for around $6,500. George and Charlie's problems should have been over. They were exonerated, safe, and free, living happily in southwestern Colorado, having been warmly accepted into the community but still another chapter remained in their ordeal. On May 22, 1891, Texas Governor James S. Big Jim Hogg issued an arrest warrant for Charlie Marlowe as an accessory in the killing of Sheriff Wallace, even though the mob verdict had been issued and Collier was dead. On June 20th, two Texas Rangers, Captain William Jesse McDonald and Sergeant James M. Grude Britton, stepped off the train in Ridgeway, and a large crowd gathered. Bill McDonald was not just any ranger. The newly appointed captain of Company B of the Frontier Battalion, he would become one of the most legendary of all Texas Rangers. He was known for reckless bravery and, according to one account, would charge hell with a bucket of water. His tombstone carries the motto, No man in the wrong can stand up against a fellow that's in the right and keeps on a coming. The Texas Rangers contacted Sheriff J.F. Bradley of Orney County, Colorado to request that he arrest Charlie and place him in their custody. A friend of the Marlowe's, Bradley brought them to town for a meeting and pledged to oblige the Rangers to make any arrest. The meeting was tense. The Texas Rangers, the Ridgeway Herald reported, were armed to the teeth with Winchesters and revolvers in anticipation of trouble in making the arrest. The Marlowe's were likewise armed, and when they all met and shook hands, it was noticeable that the shaking was all done with the left hand. The boys treated the officers courteously, however, and everything passed off smoothly. The Marlows refused arrest, as Charlie remained held by George and vice versa as federal witnesses and were not subject to civil authority. They requested the Texas Rangers telegraph Colorado Governor John Long Rout. After several days of negotiations between Governors Rout and Hogg and Marshal Knight, McDonald and Britain left empty-handed. In Ridgeway, the story circulated that if Texas again sought the Marlows, they would need to send 2,000 Texas Rangers instead of two, and the newspaper circulated a petition setting forth that the Marlowe boys are known by the signers to be good and law-abiding citizens of Ouray County, and praying the governor that they be permitted to remain here. The newspaper's petition concluded, The Marlows deserve the support of all citizens in their endeavor to be freed from persecution. George and Charlie Marlowe were indeed good citizens in Colorado. They had large families, became successful small ranchers, and were active in the community, serving as lawmen for more than a decade. 
The help Doc Shores put down a labor strike in Crested Butte, Colorado, chased stagecoach robbers, assisted with cattle sales, and arrested a murderer. Charlie eventually moved to Glendale, California to be near his children and died on January 19, 1941, 52 years to the day of his wounding in the Dry Creek ambush. George stayed in Colorado, passing away on July 3, 1945. In Charlie's obituary, the Montrose Daily Press reported, The wildest Western fiction magazines have never produced men of greater courage or more daring and remarkable incidents that were enacted in real life by these famous brothers. Arriving in this country, the Marlows were always perfectly law-abiding citizens and earned hundreds of friends, not one of whom was ever let down. The West was changing. The wheels of law and order were moving slowly when justice finally came to the surviving Marlowe brothers, but they were moving nonetheless. As a footnote, the movie The Sons of Katie Elder contains very little of the true story. Filming on The Sons of Katie Elder was to begin September 64, but had to be delayed until January of 1965, after John Wayne was diagnosed with lung cancer. Following Wayne's surgery to remove a cancerous lung and two ribs, the star still insisted on doing his own stunts, and nearly contracted pneumonia after being dragged into a river. Outdoor locations were filmed in Durango, Mexico, and on the Denver and Rio Grande Western Railroad in Colorado. The name Katie Elder was one of several names used by Mary Catherine Cummings, better known as Big Nose Kate, a Western icon and sometimes companion of Doc Holliday. John Wayne and Dean Martin had also starred in Howard Hawks' Rio Bravo six years earlier, one of Martin's earliest dramatic roles after splitting up with his partner Jerry Lewis. And this one for film buffs, at an hour and 20 into the film and at the far left side of the screen, a swastika is clearly visible, scratched into the wall of the jail cell. And in one of those scenes, John Wayne places his right hand over it to cover it. Four years later, Henry Hathaway also directed John Wayne in his Academy Award-winning role of Rooster Cogburn in the original screen version of True Grit. In addition to Wayne, actors Paul Fix, Struther Martin, Dennis Hopper, and Jeremy Slate were in that film as well. The film is famous, or infamous, for one of the most blatant continuity errors in a Western, when John Wayne fires 13 shots from an unreloaded six-shooter during the final gun battle. Wayne, in one of his earliest Hollywood jobs, was a continuity checker for films. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Our show is found at all podcatcher sites like iTunes, Stitcher, and podbay.fm, where you can subscribe free. And by doing that, you'll receive a notice every time we launch a new episode. You can also catch us at 1001storiespodcast.com, our website, which houses 1001 Heroes and our new show, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, which is wholesome entertainment for the whole family. The link to that show is at the upper right of the website. You can also search any of those podcast catchers I named above and search for 1001, and you'll find us. Our show is listened to in over 100 countries, and we appreciate your listening very much. We ask that you stop by www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash 1001 Heroes and pledge a few dollars a month to help us along and that you take every opportunity to share our show and tell others. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. (laughs) 